Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Emily Hutchison. Today is August 10th, 2022, and I'm speaking with Susan Brandt, who teaches history at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. She's the author of Women Healers, Gender, Authority, and Medicine in Early Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us, Susan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's hard to believe that it's been a decade since I did my fellowship at the center. And it's just been really fun to watch the organization grow from the Philadelphia Area Center for the History of Science PACS to this national organization with, I don't know, what is it, like 19 participating institutions, even more seminar and fellowship opportunities. So it's an amazing scholarly community. And I just, I appreciate the opportunity. Great. You write about women who provided forms of medical care in Philadelphia in the early colonial era, and your book informs us of the lives and work of a remarkable number of women healers. Elizabeth Coates Paschal is a central figure, but there's also Guglielma Penn, Hannah Freeman, Margaret Hill Morris, and Sarah Bass Allen. How did you come to study these women? Well, it was really a process. And when I embarked on a second career in history after my first profession as a nurse practitioner, I was just enthralled when Susan Klepp, my dissertation advisor, introduced me to Elizabeth Coates Paschal's 18th century medical recipe book. And Paschal was a Philadelphia Quaker who kept a detailed manuscript describing her extensive and authoritative practice. And as I read, Pascal's descriptions of her remedies and patient encounters, my mind strayed back to the 1980s when I worked in a clinic in a medically underserved area in the North Carolina mountains. And I remembered meeting lay healers and granny midwives who described their medical recipe books that had been collected, curated, and passed down through generations. And although I was theoretically the healthcare expert, of course, I was in my 20s, a newly minted nurse practitioner, these healers offered me medical advice and herbal remedies. And I knew at the time I should be recording these oral histories, but I was distracted by the demands of work and family. And opening Pascal's recipe book reminded me of these women, and I realized I could honor them by writing a history of women healers. We also lived near the lands of the Eastern Band of the Cherokees, and when I visited their new museum in the 1980s, I was intrigued by their efforts to preserve their unique cultures, including a holistic culture of healing that comprise both community and personal wellness. So so my personal experiences piqued my interest in writing my dissertation and then later the book on women healers. So that's kind of the backstory. And then as I began my research with Elizabeth Paschal, I kind of thought she might be unique. You know, will I just be writing a, a record of her? But with fellowships from CHSTM, and I've got to get a plug for people to apply for those fellowships, and other fellowships, I was able to work at over 30 archives in the U.S. and the U.K., as well as local history, local history museums, and other libraries. So I began to discover books and papers of people like Guglielma Penn, and her papers are at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And Penn opened a practice, and Penn was a skilled practitioner. I also found local histories of women like Hannah Freeman. She was a Lenape healer, remembered probably because she's the last Lenape 
in Chester County, west of Philadelphia. But because she was one of the last two Lenapes who were not pushed away, we do have information on her. And some of my findings were serendipitous. My temple colleague, Aaron Sullivan, showed me an advertisement for uh, Dr. Ryan's sugar plums to treat intestinal worms. And so he thought it was kind of humorous. But adjacent to that was an article on an apothecary named Elizabeth Weed, who took over her husband's apothecary, or that's the older word for pharmacist or, or pharmacy, his practice during the British occupation of Philadelphia during the revolution. So again, a sort of a process. And Sarah Bass Allen was very actually very foundational to the project. I wrote an article in the Villanova student history journal way back in 2004 when I was just kind of trying to dip my toes into history, deciding if I was going to make the leap. And she worked with the Free African Society nurses during the 1793 yellow fever epidemic. And so again, I brought that work into the bigger project. And the problem, I also then at that time discovered how difficult it was to find information on women healers, particularly women of color, because the healing cultures were often and predominantly oral healing cultures, oral circuits of information. So, so it's kind of a challenge to read across the grain, to dig up as much as you can. So this was kind of a social history, microhistory project with a lot of dead ends, a lot of digging, and also exciting findings. So it's almost like collecting potsherds and building an amphora or assembling mosaic pieces to create a picture of a woman healer's life and practice. In the process of researching appropriately, I was working on a project about women's healing information networks. I was also supported by extensive networks of generous scholars, uh, librarians, and archivists. The kind of care these women provided ranged from herbal remedies to treatment measurements and even surgery, which we so often associate with men physicians. Before we talk about the healers and their work, I'm curious about the setting. What aspects of Philadelphia in this period were key to women's participation in healing? It's a great question because Philadelphia is very important to the story. In the words of the historian Gary Nash, in the 18th century, Philadelphia was British North America's first city of commerce and science. And Nash, of course, wrote a book called First City on Philadelphia. It had the colony's first hospital, medical school, medical society, and philosophical society. And these institutions, their influence reached far beyond the Mid-Atlantic into the Atlantic world. Also, there were several other aspects, its population, its unregulated medical marketplace, and the influence of Quakerism were also important. So Philadelphia's population was diverse, not in the way that we would think of it, but it was diverse for the time and place. It was composed of voluntary and also coerced immigrants from the British Isles, Africa, the Caribbean, and the German states, as well as other European countries. And so healthcare practitioners in this milieu are healthcare practitioners of various ethnicities and religious persuasions contributed a rich array of health practices and differing medical worldviews to the healthcare landscape. And women healers found common ground in their interest and desire to exchange health information, discover cures for illness, especially if you know they had a sick patient trying to find a cure, and that fostered hybrid healing cultures and remedies. So these unique hybrid cultures developed. Philadelphia's medical marketplace was unregulated with few legal constrictions regulating medical or pharmaceutical practice. So women 
practitioners of various social orders, including women of color, could and did set up practices as doctors, doctresses, apothecaries, bone setters, cancer specialists, therapeutic leaders, midwives, eye specialists, herbalists, and nurses, and and even more. Other women sold popular patent medicines such as Daffy's Elixir or Turlington's Balsam of Life, opening up shop in their homes or peddling pharmaceuticals and medical advice door to door. And women healers' participation in the development of an emerging consumer marketplace was one of the surprising and interesting discoveries in my research. I really didn't expect to find that, and that really broadened my sense of of women's practice and authority. The Philadelphia Quaker community was also really important to the narrative, along with her husband, William Penn, Pennsylvania's founder. The skilled healer, Guglielma Penn, whom I feature in Chapter 1, was instrumental in establishing a radical sect called the Society of Friends or Quakers. And in addition to her religious activism, Guglielma Penn kept an extensive medical recipe book documenting her practice. And she was remembered by a biographer for her great skill in medicine and surgery. So in addition to bringing their healing skills to Pennsylvania, Quaker women also brought radical ideas about equality, female education, and public activism. And a number of Quaker women also appropriated the authority of, of authorship, which, you know, women were not supposed to put their names out in print. And these women, their names were right on the tracks. One of Penn's good friends and fellow founder of Quakerism, Margaret Fell Fox, penned a tract called Women Speaking, Justified, Proved, and Allowed by the Scriptures. And in it, she affirmed women's spiritual equality and promoted women speaking in public. And Quaker ministers, women ministers, often left husbands and children behind and traveled thousands of miles throughout the Atlantic world, preaching to audiences of both women and men. And of course, this was far outside of gender norms of the period. Women were prohibited from speaking in church or teaching men in church, prohibited from speaking in public. And in, as the Bible says, woman should never usurp authority over man. And they were way, way outside of those. Friends also rejected professional hierarchies. They had the big round hats and they'd never tip their hats to anyone. So Quaker women had precedence for entering the public sphere as healers, and for challenging learned physicians' authority. And so these subversive norms affected the way that gender operated in Philadelphia. And it was no accident that the first women's medical school in the world was founded in Philadelphia in 1850 by Quaker women and men. And we think of Quakers as central to the abolition and women's suffrage movement, but they were also very active in health reform movements and the push for women's medical education. So, yes, yeah, so Philadelphia was is an important character in the story. I found the Quakerism information so interesting and how that played in. Did the women healers in your book share a common background? Who were they in terms of race, class, and education? Yeah, and they really were quite a diverse bunch. As I progressed through my research, I was fascinated to discover just how diverse they were with social classes or ethnicities, as well as their variety of practices. And I probably should just define my term women healers because it may be a, a not a real clear term. And 
over the course of my project, I actually expanded my definition of women healers to think about healing in its broadest sense, encompassing a spectrum of both paid and unpaid healing work. And that would include diagnostic, prescriptive, therapeutic, pharmaceutical, obstetric, and nursing services, and probably more that I can't think of. And women women's practices could incorporate any of these categories, often changing over a course of a lifetime. A woman might start with an unpaid practice, find herself in need of income for her family, and move into a paid practice. And it was easiest, of course, to begin my research with literate Euro-American women like Elizabeth Coates Pascal and Margaret Hill Morris, because they left behind more documents. And they were members of the elite merchant class of Philadelphia, often called the Quaker grandees. They were likely educated at home by, by literate parents. Pascal's mother was remembered as a blue stocking. And so they, they had a lot of social capital to build their authority and their practices on. But even white, middling, and upper-class women often left behind surprisingly few documents. Elizabeth Coates Pascal's recipe book and her business receipt books are the only sources in her, they're written in her hand, the only extant sources. So just looking at other classes, the apothecary Elizabeth Weed hailed from the artisanal classes, again, a group that's even more difficult to recover. And as I've said, I began my research on her with a newspaper advertisement, and it led through to accounts of her husband's apothecary practice and his counterfeiting exploits. He counterfeit money, which made an interesting link between counterfeiting and patent medicine sales. So Weed also was educated by her husband in some con games, and also you see this in sort of the very bombastic language that she used to, to advertise her products. And, and ultimately, weed syrup, the, the counterfeiter sort of got counterfeited. Weed syrup was so popular that a barber and a shoemaker in Burlington, New Jersey named James Craft, the crafty James Craft, was counterfeiting her weed syrup. And she actually, she wrote all these newspaper articles and sued him for intellectual property rights before that was even a clear legal thing at the time. Mary Waters practiced as a doctor's nurse and apothecary, and she was a single woman from the time they would call them from the lower sort. And the prominent physician, Benjamin Rush, was so impressed with her healing skills that he began writing a biography, and it's in his papers at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And she immigrated from Ireland in 1766, like most immigrants at that time, was likely impoverished and certainly faced anti-Catholic prejudice in Philadelphia, but she parlayed her relationships with Philadelphia physicians that she developed during her work as a nurse during the revolution to create a successful practice during the war. And her practice was so successful that she was able to propel as a widow, widow or single woman, I'm not sure which, was able to prepare or propel her son James into a higher class where he published a weekly magazine and became part of a group of young literati in Philadelphia. And of course, she advertised her medicines in her son's magazine. By contrast, the Lenape healer, Hannah Freeman, was consigned to the laboring classes as colonists dispossessed her family and her people from their lands. But by selling medical herbs, healing advice, and baskets, along with paid domestic service, Freeman earned the income that allowed her to stay in her home places. In a newspaper account, a Quaker minister identified Freeman as a doctress and a basket maker, and he remembered visiting her wigwam and paid five shillings for a remedy for his sick children. So healing facilitated Hannah Freeman's cultural and geographic persistence. 
In other instances, the Quaker reformer and healer Anne Parrish described an African-American practitioner named Anna Bellamy as a woman of education and called by some the black doctor who professes bone setting, bleeding, tooth drawing, and curing wounds. And another African-American healer, Sarah Bass, was born enslaved in Virginia, but in adulthood became what some historians call a member of the Philadelphia's Black elite. After nursing yellow fever patients in the 1793 epidemic under the auspices of the Free African Society, along with the preacher Richard Allen, she married Richard Allen. It was sort of a yellow fever romance. And they together founded the African Methodist Episcopal or AME Church, known for its work in abolition and strong social activism. And I think one of the more satisfying aspects of my research was recovering the lives and practices of these strong, skilled, and diverse women. It's really fascinating, the diversity and the depth of the stories that you get. Some of the women healers leveraged their connections to traditional male authorities. Others used networks of women as a way to learn, practice, and offer medical help to their communities. What were some of the ways women healers managed to create and sustain these networks? The networks were very important to authority. And in chapter two, I kind of focus on that and I analyze how women's networks did imbue their practices with authority. And Elizabeth Pascal is just one example, but her very discursive recipe book effectively documents her networks. Pascal deployed her dynamic personality that just jumps off the page of her recipe book, her social capital, and her close interpersonal relationships to become an authoritative node in a web and webs of healthcare information exchanges. And sociologists are, of course, very interested in analyzing how influence is created within social networks, especially online communities. But the theories are applicable to Philadelphia's face-to-face community. According to Mark Granovetter, who's one of the classic original social network theorists, once a person is identified as an influential node within a social network, new network participants look to that person for information advice, and the process just becomes self-reinforcing. Participants continue to cluster around the person with authority, and the clustering just snowballs. And we can certainly see this with social media influencers, but it can, again, happen in a face-to-face community. Pascal increased the scope of her influence by reaching beyond immediate networks to participate in wider communities. Her actions are consistent with Granovetter's argument that a trusted person's contacts with people outside of close-knit networks enables an ingress of new information and creativity, which also strengthens the person's as an authoritative node, and Granovetter calls this the strength of weak ties. And Pascal did import new information into her practice from areas outside of Philadelphia. And for a few examples, she gleaned a new medicine for deafness from Jane Davis of Goshen, Pennsylvania, and a brimstone remedy for measles that she learned from the people of New England, and a cure from ringworm from a gentleman traveler named Paul Tooks. She described a complex rheumatism cure that was, again, I'm quoting from her recipe book, a true copy from Dr. John Pyle of North Carolina, given to me by his aunt Sarah Way. And sufferers often did venture outside of their communities to find cures, and sometimes they also looked within their communities as well. Pascal's 
Quaker neighbor, Catherine Wistar, of the same family of the Wistar Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, of German descent. And she consulted a German, a Pennsylvania German healer, to treat a swelling on her newborn son's head after several doctors were, quote, as Pascal writes, unable to effect a cure. And this is very common in Pascal and other women's recipe books. You see at the bottom of the recipe, cured when the doctors failed. So patients might start with a woman healer, might go to a doctor, another practitioner, and then come back to a woman healer. And so this woman healer advised Wistar to rub the swelling with fasting spittle and cover it with a piece of thin lead. And this remedy contains aspect of sympathetic magic and alchemical cures typical of German-American vernacular healing, a culture called Bracheri, I'm not sure I can pronounce it correctly, that is still practiced today in parts outside of Philadelphia. And so it kind of shows chains of information within communities. When Pascal wrote this down, this was information from outside of her community. And just in terms of Germans, it's important to remember that by mid-18th century, a third of Pennsylvanians were of German descent. So those healing cultures were very important in Pennsylvania. And as we can see, women healers exchanged information with other women, but this was certainly not a hermetically sealed women's sphere men and women's information networks overlapped. And it was pretty typical to see in women's recipe books information from other women healers, their neighbors, lay male healers, physicians, apothecaries, indigenous practitioners, black practitioners, and just a whole slew of others. And you mentioned relationships with physicians. Women were in both competitive and collaborative relationships with physicians. And some, like Margaret Hill Morris or the Logan women at Stenton, that's now a historical museum in Germantown, they were embedded in family networks comprised of both physicians and women healers. And I can see in their writing that they shared information and ideas and had real respect for each other's expertise. And these networks also extended into Native American communities and indigenous communities. And of course, indigenous women shared healing information among themselves as well. And Elizabeth Pascal recorded an indigenous woman's successful remedy that used parts of an elder tree to cure Whitlow, which is an infected fingertip. And for us, this may seem just like a minor first aid injury, but at the time, this type of infection could progress to a septic joint. The infection could work its way up the arm. And you know, I even see cases where someone has to have an amputated finger just starting with a little infection in the fingertip. So Pascal in a recipe book says, take elder leaves, or if you cannot, the winter roots of bark will do. Pound them fine with cream to moisten and apply to the finger as a poultice. And then Pascal shared her sources. An Indian woman cured Henry Clinton's wife of one, and he imparted the secret to Joseph Watkins, who has cured many with it since. And Watkins was a male healer that was a friend of Pascal's. And he also delivered lumber. He supplied lumber for Pascal as she built her country house in Frankfurt. I see him in her business receipt book. So your Americans clearly recognize indigenous women as producers of medical knowledge and their knowledge was particularly valued. Again, if you had these secret Indian cures that imbued Pascal own practice with authority while reflecting in Native American women's authority. And just, I think I maybe didn't talk about education, knowledge and skills were passed down generationally as we saw with Guglielma Penn, as well as through community networks.
In the patriarchal setting of early America, you show how women healers garnered authority despite the gender divisions of labor within their social settings. Can you describe some of the ways the healers achieved medical authority? Yes, and of course, that is key to to my book and key in my title. And actually, I examine different ways that women appropriated medical authority in each of my loosely chronological chapters beginning in the late 17th century and continuing into the 19th century. So in each chapter, I highlight one woman, build networks around her, and then focus on one type of healing authority. And as I mentioned earlier, in chapter one, I describe how European women brought with them to Pennsylvania a culture of authoritative, medically skilled women. And women like Guglielma Penn reflect deep legacies of healing authority. And she continued writing. Her grandmother handed her recipe book down to Pascal. Pascal continued writing her own recipes and embellishing that book. And just to give you a sense, again, of skill sets, Springett, her grandmother, Catherine Springett, had a general medical practice, but she was also a renowned eye specialist. According to one account, Springett was so proficient in cataract surgery that a celebrated London oculist sent patients to her when he couldn't cure them. And it wasn't unusual for women to be ocular experts who prescribed medicines and couched cataracts using a flat needle to displace the cloudy lens. When you see pictures of this, you think, "Mm, I really would rather have anesthesia, but it was reasonably effective, particularly if they put glasses on top of it. But women were using the same skills that they had honed, the fine motor skills they'd honed in decorative needlework. So maybe this isn't surprising. And importantly, women healers in both Europe and later in the British North American colonies practiced within the same medical worldview as learned physicians. The same, they practiced humoral medicine that was modified by newer theories like William Harvey's work on the circulation of the blood. So while physicians often had the deeper theoretical framework for what they were doing on the ground, physicians and women healers practiced surprisingly similar therapeutics. And of course, elite women like Penn or Pascal were reading medical texts, so they did also have a theoretical component. In chapter two, I look at how women use social networks to create authority, as we just discussed. And in chapter three, I look at how Lenape women garnered healing authority based on their knowledge of local botanicals, as well as their reputations for successful cures that were valued both in their communities and by Pennsylvania colonists. And the Lenape's were an indigenous group that had long inhabited the lands essentially of eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So that was the groups that Philadelphians were encountering. And European natural philosophers, men of science, as well as learned physicians, were really interested in finding these Native American cures and again, acknowledge their healing expertise, particularly They understood that Native peoples had skills curing wounds, broken bones, and fevers. So those were things that European practitioners were interested in learning about. In one example, John Heckwelder, a Moravian minister who was also a part of scientific networks, described his admiration for indigenous women's expertise. And he was part of scientific networks that included Benjamin Franklin, Peter Kalm, Hans Sloan, other transatlantic gentlemen of science, and also women like Pascal and Anne Bartram, John Bartram's wife. And so Heckwelder recorded information about the Lenapis. He said, there are Lenape physicians of both sexes who take considerable pains to acquire a correct knowledge of the properties and medical virtues of plants, roots, and bark 
to benefit their fellow men. Their science is entirely founded on observation, experience, and the well-tried efficacy of remedies. Again, this is similar to enlightenment science, hands-on, empirical scientific technique. He said, I've been cured by their remedies and known many, both whites and Indians, who experienced similar successes. Also, the wives of missionaries experienced good results when they applied to female Lenape physicians to cure the complaints peculiar to their sex, in other words, gynecological problems. And I was intrigued by Heckwelder's use of female physicians because it seems to me to be a mark of respect for their practice. So Native American women healers did exert an authority at the time, even though later, of course, gentlemen of science and physicians tried to suppress the Native American origins of many of these therapies. In chapter four, I look at how women learned to wield the new authority of enlightenment science, which informed their practices. And the rise of empirical science actually challenged hands-on observational science, challenged the authority and the preeminence of university degrees, and ancient experts that had been the standard. And this provided women healers with opportunities to engage in scientific pursuits and build their authority that way. Of course, many Enlightenment natural philosophers, including Immanuel Kant, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, believe that women or argued that women were innately illogical, passionately emotional, and unfit for the male pursuits of science and medicine. But in this chapter, I kind of flip the script and look at the history of science from the bottom up, where you do see the participation of lay people, women healers, and women of color as part of these networks of scientific information gathering. They are often the people on the ground who have the critical knowledge that these natural philosophers are looking for. So again, people, women healers of various ethnicities were recognized as authoritative providers of medicine and of scientific knowledge. Again, flipping back to Elizabeth Coates Pascal, her recipe book, really in it, she really documents her scientific experiment. She actually does experiments. She makes observations. She records her outcomes. So she also does seem to have a sense of this empirical scientific method. She also read and checked out medical books from the Library Company of Philadelphia, including Dr. Robert James's Medicinal Dictionary, which is a three-volume folio that is these huge 15-pound folio editions. In one, she read through article on anatomy, where she is actually kind of virtually sitting in on a dissection by the renowned Dr. James Douglas at the Royal Society. And she transcribes a number of paragraphs, but she particularly focuses on his description of a woman of great reputation, a woman healer who cured a patient of something called a bronchocele with medications and not having to do risky surgery. And surgery was certainly risky at that time. So again, she's filtering through these medical texts and finding accounts of other women who were skilled healers. So women can become part of scientific networks and use scientific science to create authority. In chapters five and six, I look at how women's medical and pharmaceutical and entrepreneurship help them gain authority. And I argue that their financial successes are a measure of their ability to maintain their authority. And prescribing medications becomes very important to patients as we see this consumer medical market 
go forward. In chapter seven, again, I look at Sarah Bass Allen, the African-American nurses, and how they really deploy the authority of humanitarian healing. They argue that their humanitarianism is a mark of themselves as feeling people in the midst of something called a culture of sensibility, and that their work, their humanitarian work, makes them eligible and worthy of full citizenship rather than being either enslaved or second-class citizens. And in chapter eight, I look at where we begin to see this powerful discourse of domesticity that seeks to relegate women to the private household world, and where we see that sense that medical authority, women are really being challenged, their public health care work is being challenged. But I I really found that African-American and Euro-American women continue to pursue medical entrepreneurship, learn science in these newly minted women's academies that were popping up all over the place. They worked as public health educators, leaders in health reform organizations, and others embraced non-traditional medical movements that were also just really popular at the time, Thomsonian, they became Thomsonian botanical practitioners, hydropaths or water cure practitioners, homeopaths, eclectics, and these specialties were more open to women practitioners. And it was not an accident that, again, the first women's medical school in the world, the Women's Medical College, was founded in Philadelphia by Quaker homeopaths and their families. It's so fascinating. Final question. You write that even though, quote, male medical professionals ultimately sidelined women practitioners by the early 20th century, end quote, the decline of women's healing authority wasn't a foregone conclusion. What lessons do you hope contemporary readers pick up from these 17th and 18th century healers? To answer the first part, it's important to remember that the period when women were sidelined by male physicians was relatively short in historical time, really just over half a century. And for those of us growing up in the 50s and 60s, I'm dating myself, but at the time, male physicians' cultural power seemed so natural that it appeared that they'd always had this godlike influence. But many medical historians chart the, the true rise of physicians' preeminent authority in the 1920s when medical care moved from homes, from domestic spaces into hospitals within whose walls patients and families lost their autonomy. You know, you think of going in the hospital and you take off your clothes and you're in that awful hospital gown. And then by the 1970s, the preeminence of physicians was also challenged or began to be challenged by increasing numbers of women, medical students, and physicians, the empowerment of nurses, the rise of mid-level providers like nurse practitioners and PAs, the women's health movement and other consumer health movements. So really, I think women and men physicians do have a lot of authority in our society. Certainly when we see a pandemic, we're trying to look for the authority of science, but physicians did face challenges. And my students note that today's diverse medical marketplace is not too dissimilar from the 18th century. We have naturopaths, herbalists, integrative medicine, Ayurvedic providers, cuppers. Here in Colorado, we have medical marijuana providers, and so on. So even even regular physicians do continue to have challenges that dilutes their authority. And I think to answer the second part, it's important for me that this type of work is not just an antiquarian pursuit, because the narratives of women in the past speak to issues that reverberate into the present. 
And considering women's healing legacies, it's not surprising that women hold 76% of all healthcare jobs in the U.S. And I think the first women's medical school graduates back in 1850s would be pleased to know that over half of the students in medical schools are women. Women also dominate the field of pharmacy. Nurses form the largest segment of healthcare professionals, and over 90% are women. And a recent New York Times article I was interested to read pointed out that during the COVID pandemic, women constituted the majority of essential and still constitute the majority of essential frontline workers. And as the article's authors emphasized, quote, from the cashier to the emergency room nurse to the drugstore pharmacist to the home health aide taking the bus to check on her older client, the soldier on the front lines of the current national emergency is most likely a woman. But, you know, nonetheless, despite advances, there's still hurdles for women who work as healthcare providers. And the article noted that many women healthcare workers are undervalued and underpaid, particularly those who work in, say, home care or in elder care. And some studies also demonstrate ongoing racial barriers within the nursing profession. We see increased attrition among Black nurses and nursing students, and that leads to lower percentages of women in faculty and in leadership positions. In medicine, men still dominate the most lucrative specialties and earn 25% more than women in comparable fields. And minority women are still underrepresented in all medical specialties and in the field of pharmacy. And I think these deficits are related to the ongoing gender gap in STEM fields and science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And this reflects a long history of women's marginalization in the disciplines that form the healthcare-related jobs. And of course, the gap is particularly acute for women of color. And the causes are complex. They can be traced to systemic educational and social inequalities. But I also found some studies that suggest that the lack of educational curriculum highlighting women's past engagement in medicine and science makes the problem a lot worse. And my students confirm their lack of instruction in the history of women in medicine and science. And some of the studies just ask students, name a woman in you know, they said name men in history of science, Bildad Einstein and all kinds of things. And many students just left the page blank or they said nursing students said Florence Nightingale. Some said Marie Curie. Some said Hillary Clinton. We really don't know these histories. So educational researchers have underscored that this lack of instruction, the lack of historical role models is really problematic. And they it stressed the need to accentuate the history of women in medicine and the science at all educational levels. And it, for me, this highlights the work of CHSTM, what you're doing here at the center. And for me, telling the stories by telling stories that enliven the struggles as well as the successes of women in the past, you know, I hope to provide students with role models and strategies so that they can navigate current problematic cultural barriers. And the pandemic reminds us that women healers and their longstanding essential medical work really deserves recognition. And a goal of my book is to write women back into the histories of medicine and science. Thank you so much, Susan, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Susan Brandt's book is Women Healers, Gender Authority in Medicine in Early Philadelphia, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. 
This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic as well as others at chstm.org.